Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for uh, joining us for today's AIWA Los Angeles Las Vegas section uh, hybrid event. Uh, we have uh, a lot of people online, and uh, but we highly appreciate people joining us on site. It's good to see people uh, gradually showing up uh, because actually AIWA uh, meetings work uh, very well if you come join us in person. If we're able to network much better, meet the speaker now, you pick up the uh, souvenir from the speaker that um, uh, I'm sorry for the on online attendee, but they, they will um, uh, get the, uh, the essence you know, of today's uh, lecture from uh, our distinguished speaker. Um, so, um, so basically, well, I think it's cut off, but anyway, this is our schedule. Um, so we will start in about five minutes, uh, speaker will start the presentation. And around 12.15, if you order lunch box, you will be here and the presentation Q&A will run roughly uh, 90 minutes, uh, but we can be flexible. And the, the library closed at two, so everybody has to leave the room uh, by two, uh, but we have plenty of time. Uh, so let's see. Uh, just a few words about uh, AAA. As you know, it's a, a, a national worldwide organization of professional members uh, that we do also STEM outreach and that we encourage people to work hard work well, and if you do a good job, you got awards and uh, uh, get uh, lots of visibility. Um, so you can see this uh, uh, map, actually we have international presence too. Uh, so our current president is Basil Hassan. Uh, uh, actually the, our executive director is uh, Mr. Daniel Dunbarker. Uh, that actually he used to work on the NASA uh, Delta Clipper project. So. He always told us his son told all other people, his dad, which is Dan, Daniel, uh, defeated Elon Musk by 20 years uh, because that project was in 95. So uh, our former section chair is Dr. Jeff Pushal. Now he's got promoted to the regional education director. Uh, so I'm succeeding him as a section chair. Uh, so it's a big organization and uh, you're really welcome to look into this because uh, you have all different level of um, membership. You know, you have, you know, it's good also for you to network and the education opportunity. Uh, you meet people you were never able to meet in other places. So it's really good. And we are doing our best to uh, keep a good speaker and uh, a networking opportunity together. And then right now we have very good uh, volunteers, um, you know, from uh, a JPR Boeing and, uh, you know, educator, um, in the North Gorman, attorney, uh, so different levels. So I will try to cut it a bit short. Uh, so basically there are a lot of resources, uh, magazines, uh, uh, daily launch, you can see. Uh, and the AIWA also publish, uh, that's also a very important part. So it's a professional organization we do uh, try to connect to the uh, society. Uh, and they also have different level of membership. Uh, you can become uh, uh, you know, fellow, associate fellow, honorary fellow, for example, uh, <clears throat> uh, Dr. Bill Gersten Meyer <clears throat> is uh, now consultant with X SpaceX, is a uh, former NASA human uh, spaceflight director, is uh, honorary fellow, and the uh, Green Shotwell of SpaceX. Uh, many things, uh, <clears throat> and the national conferences, uh, please welcome to take a look, and then we have many local activity, and we also have newsletter, so uh, we encourage you to submit your articles or recommend uh, good article for you know publication. 
So today we have honor to have the, uh, Mr. Dave Doody uh, from uh, uh, NASA JPL. He's a space flight operation engineer. Uh, he's uh, working on real-time mission control operation. He's working on the psyche mission. Uh, actually, three weeks ago, we had the planetary defense uh, mini conference. We have speaker talking about psyche mission, uh, but they collaborate from, uh, with JPL from Aerospace Corporation, but it was very exciting. Uh, he served, uh, he worked on uh, uh, the, the Cassini-Huygens mission for 20 years, uh, you know, from lunch to spectacular grand finale in 2017. That's really amazing. Uh, he served uh, in U.S. Air Force for a long time. Afterwards, he worked on the instructor for Japan Air Force Airlines, uh, teaching captains and the first officer uh, of the uh, Japan Airline. And at the same time, he led the inst instructional system development effort uh, there uh, for their flight crews training center. Um, he le having landed on Catalina Island after sailing uh, the coast, uh, Dave worked as a system engineer there for three years before joining a NASA JPL Deep Space Network in Pasadena to create in in instructional systems and the training materials uh, for operators uh, of the worldwide spacecraft communi communication system. Uh, on completion of the Deep Space Network contract, uh, he got his master's degree and then went to work on the NASA Voyager mission, uh, flight operation team while Voyager 2 cruised from Saturn to Uranus and Neptune, uh, flight operation on Magellan, uh, the Venus mapper, and we uh, then led the flight operation ups, work on the Cassini-Huygens mission to Saturn and Titan, uh, where he has been since 1994. Um, we have a Voyager event in 1990. Sorry, two, 2017 uh, with um, Dr. Kasani and uh, Professor oh. Eston. Well, yeah. really? That yes. was, uh, how did I miss that? <laughs> we'll stay in touch. <laughs> we'll stay in touch. We'll, we'll play with something again. Uh, and uh, all during the Voyager, Magellan, and Cassini mission operation, Dave has also been publishing in technical and uh, popular literature, uh, teaching short courses and uh, speaking in public and spacefly related subjects. Once in a while, you can find him uh, playing sidewalk astronomer in Pasadena, offering free telescope views uh, of the planets to passengers. But actually, I was there. I probably that was you. I actually saw somebody, you know, put the telescope there. Oh, gee. Maybe that was you. Okay. Yeah, that's amazing. And once a year, they welcome participants from all walks of life uh, in his basics of interplanetary fly uh, seminar with uh, our Center College of Design. Uh, in Pasadena. This is fantastic. We, we love this uh, topic and uh, your, all your efforts. So without further ado, let's welcome uh, Mr. Dave Judy. Okay. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, great to see you all here and everybody online. And uh, Ken, thank you for going through the long version of my introduction. <laughs> and, uh, and Ken, you've set up a wonderful uh, hybrid meeting for us here. Um, do I need to be in view of the camera here or am I? Okay, good. And uh, so this is the first time I've done an in-person presentation since BC before COVID. So it, it's a real pleasure. And one of the cool things about, oh, good, okay, good, okay. And one of the cool things about in-person meetings is that we get, get to give away stickers Here's a Europa 
sticker and some deep space network stickers and some other cool things up front and also when you come up to to get these sorry everybody online uh, but online you can go to europa.nasa.gov where you can download this uh, scale model of the europa clipper spacecraft download it and print it on a 3d printer so um yeah thanks again for for having me ken and and i want to go back up to a couple of pictures here. I was passing this corner this morning, driving from Pasadena, where I had coffee and, uh, and got on the, the freeway to get here. This is an old car dealership. It's on, I think it's St. John Avenue at Colorado. And uh, it's all boarded up. The, the high-end car dealer has moved away. Um, here's a different shot of that building. But what struck me is this an AIAA plaque on that building, because that building, um, dating back to 1942, was the uh, manufacturing facility for the production of rocket propulsion systems right there in Pasadena. Of course, uh, Dr. Theodore von Karman uh, ran this aerojet company and also started JPL. So anyway, it's my pleasure to to be talking about the Europa Clipper mission. Um, we'll be launching October of 2024. Spacecraft is being built now, tested, all the ground operations are being pulled together. This image, you probably recognize who, who drew this. Galileo, the professor at Padua, University in 1610 had a look through his telescope at well, the moon and, and noticed that there were um, mountains and valleys and craters on the moon. He looked at Jupiter and saw these four little stars. He named them the start of stars of Medici because um, Medici family was his patron at the time. Uh, and then noticed that they moved but they always stayed close to Jupiter. Advanced to current decades, when the Voyager mission launched in 1977, Voyager 2 launched and then Voyager 1 launched after that, they had a close-up view of these, these moons orbiting Jupiter. And of course, did reconnaissance of the the Jupiter system. But at that time, the thinking in, in planetary science and astronomy was that these moons in the outer solar system were just dead worlds like our own moon. I mean, here's our moon close to the Earth, uh, close uh, to the sun as Earth is, roughly. And our, our moon is just a geologically dead, uh, vacuum surrounded um, body. And then Voyager made the discovery that each of those little dots here at Jupiter, also at Saturn, Voyager 1 and 2 did a reconnaissance of the Saturn system. Um, were you guys at the meeting that I missed of uh, John Cassani and Ed Stone? Anybody attend that? Okay, good. I'm glad I'm not the only one who missed it, but that must have been a great uh, meeting. Um, 
So Voyager had a look at these moons and the moons of Saturn and the moon, moons of Uranus and the moons of Neptune, as well as the whole planetary system of environment and rings. But the moons are all different. Each of the outer planets has a retinue of moons as though they're miniature solar systems. We know that Io, moon that's, that's going around fastest here in this animation, is not a dead world. It has volcanoes going off on the surface, constantly refreshing the surface. It's, it's a dry world. There's no water. It's all sulfur volcanism with pools of sulfur lava. The next one out, um, oops, I didn't mean to push that button. I meant to push this button. Okay, the next one out, there it is, is uh, Europa. And the Voyagers discovered um, that it's got a thin shell of ice with strange surface characteristics that invest that board uh, more investigation in the future. Um, so they're not just dead worlds. We learned through reconnaissance of Voyager uh, that they're all different. In this this view now, uh, Io and the in, uh, inner part close to Jupiter, you can see the volcanically freshened surface, Europa. Europa is about the size of our own moon, but our own moon is geologically dead, has no water. Europa out of Jupiter has more water, more than twice the amount of ocean water than Earth. And it, it's got a, a shell with few craters, which means it's geologically a young shell, young surface. And then the next one out is, is Ganymede. It's the, the largest one, uh, largest moon in our solar system. There's an image of the Voyager uh, a spacecraft that went by Jupiter in 1979, Voyager 1 and then Voyager 2. And then the final moon out, uh, the farthest one out, uh, Callisto. For every one orbit that Io makes around Jupiter, once every 1.8 days, Earth days, Europa goes around exactly twice. For every one orbit Europa makes, Ganymede goes, excuse, other way around. For every two orbits that Io makes, Europa goes around once. For every two orbits that Europa makes, Ganymede goes around once. There's that resonance. Uh, incidentally, I'd, I'd like to welcome questions as I, as I go along. If I say anything funny, uh, let me know. A question, all right. The theory of how they formed during the formation of the solar system, a uh, large swirling mass of gas and dust created the sun. It also created little eddies around where Jupiter is now and where or in the distant past and where Saturn was in the distant past. And those little eddies just formed into, uh, condensed into little um, moons, uh, the same as the planets condensing out in the whirlpool going around the sun. <clears throat> well, I've heard that the leading theory for our own moon's creation is a a collision with a large body in the solar system uh, that 
broke it apart, uh, uh, collided with Earth, broke off fragments that orbited and then formed the moon. I'm not an expert in that by any means. Just the way they've evolved, the surface characteristics, the, the interiors, um, just amazing, as different as the planets are uh, orbiting the sun. Um, Ken, is it possible to receive questions online as well as, as we go along? Just once in a while, if there's a, if there's a pressing question, oh, we'll have plenty of time at the end as well. Oh, good, okay. I've also got an image of the Galileo spacecraft up here. Uh, the Galileo spacecraft orbited Jupiter um, 1995 through 2003, and uh, did a lot of close-up studies of these moons of Jupiter, as well as Jupiter and its environment. Yeah, I asked Darren, do you want to speak out? I saw you post uh, some command. Darren, you can unmute yourself. Uh, no worries. I, I just uh, shared a link that uh, so it, it, it was kind of a online uh, sort of replacement for the, the lack of stickers, uh, essentially just uh, information about an upcoming congressional reception for essentially the uh, entire California aerospace uh, community. So essentially everybody's invited. So, so I knew about it. So it was just kind of a little heads up for anyone who didn't know. Good. Thank you. Sorry to interrupt. So, um, Dr. Kevin Hand, who's an expert um, of, on, on the subject of Europa at Jupiter and other, quote, ocean worlds. In his book, uh, Alien Oceans, which I recommend, by the way, he points out that we know that various different sciences work as well as here on Earth, but also throughout the solar system and beyond. For example, gravitation. Newton uh, described how gravitation works and, and described how the moon is falling around the Earth and, and the balance between gravity and its centrifugal force. So we know gravitation works here on Earth, and we know that gravitation works in the universe in general from what we see, the moon and beyond. Uh, Galileo with his telescope watching gravitational and or, uh, orbital, excuse me, orbital mechanics working uh, somewhere else than Earth, way out of Jupiter. So we know those two are not just confined to Earth. Geology, again, starting with Galileo, observing geology on our own moon, and then the Galileo spacecraft, observing all the geology uh, on the worlds at Jupiter, of course, the Apollo missions, uh, investigating the geology. So we know geology works not only on Earth, but also elsewhere in the universe. Chemistry, we've long known since the invention of spectroscopy that all the chemical elements that we have here on Earth are also present in other locations, not just Earth. In stars, we can identify the chemistry that's working in, in other bodies, planets, and, and moons, we can identify and measure and watch the chemistry in action. So all these sciences work on Earth, but also um, throughout the universe. We have plenty of water here on Earth, and we're also learning that there's water uh, elsewhere in our own solar system, Europa, uh, Ganymede have oceans, out at Saturn, Titan 
has an ocean, the little moon Enceladus, little tiny moon. Nobody thought it would have an ocean, but it does. Um, the asteroid Ceres probably has or had an ocean. So there's a lot of water as well. How about the science of biology? That's the big question. Thank you to Kevin Hand. This is where we are in science. So let's talk about Europa. As you look at the surface of Europe, again, about the size of our own moon, um, Europa has a crust that just to a layman's eye looks like fragmented ice floating around on top of something. Chaos surfaces, look at all the broken cracks of ice chunks floating. There are few craters, means uh, compared to our own moon, which has, I guess, millions of craters, Europa, Jupiter's moon, has a handful of craters. So something is resurfacing the surface, the shell, near real time. It's got these lenticular features that suggest some sort of upwelling might be, upwelling might be uh, taking place. So the current estimation of what is Europa is a metallic core. And this is based on studies of the density and the gravitation um, and the magnetic fields, uh, largely from the Galileo spacecraft. Uh, we know pretty well that it's gotta have um, metallic core surrounded by rock, surrounded by water. And then the water freezes in the cold vacuum of space to form that shell. Now, when rock and water interact, there's the possibility that it soaks up chemicals, salts, um, even geologic activity going on in the rock uh, can provide um, not only various chemistry, but also energy, source of energy. Here's an artist's depiction of what we think is happening. We know there's a lot of water. And from formation of uh, impacts on the surface that might uh, recirculate down into the ocean. And oh, am I drifting out of the field of view? Sorry about that. Yes. Dave, Dave. Just Dave. I'm not a doctor. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. Impacts. Yes, the craters on the surface have been counted. But in the, in the large geological history dating back to say uh, three or 4 billion years ago, um, it's, a, it's a period of hundreds of millions of years that, that the surface has been uh, resurfaced. Now, I'm not a geologist or a planetary scientist, but that's, that's what I hear working in, the, in proximity with these guys, these people. Yeah, sure. So 
there's the, the thin candy shell floating on an ocean. Uh, we know that there's more than twice the amount of water that Earth has. Uh, chemical energy, probably some from above, very likely some from below. And the stability of it, it's been there since the formation of Jupiter, basically. Billions of years. So if we have a stable water system with chemistry and energy happening, does that drive life? Is that an opportunity for life? This is one of the questions that we hope to answer. Um, here on Earth, this, this was also started back in 1977 when the Voyagers launched. Uh, just happened that we were doing undersea investigations here on Earth and submersibles took these images and sequences of, of uh, movies at the deep hydrothermal vents, like the deepest part of the Marianas Trench has volcanoes that are spewing these hot gases up into the ocean at enormous depths and pressures. It doesn't boil because of the humongous pressure, but the chemistry feeds a whole ecosystem of life that never sees the sun. No photosynthesis is involved in the making of these shrimp. Here's the spacecraft that we're going to use to go check out Europa and, and investigate Europa to see if it's really a habitable location where life may have started. Now, one thing about uh, life other places in our own solar system, if we discovered uh, fossils on Mars, for example, or even extant life in, on Mars, say in lakes underneath the, the water ice cap uh, or something, there's the question of, is it related to Earth life? Is it DNA based? Because Mars and Earth trade material over the, the ages. Um, so if we find any evidence of extinct or extant life on Mars, which Perseverance is running around the surface doing right now in a very good location to look for uh, evidence of past life there. There's still the question, is it related to Earth? And if it does look like DNA, well, first of all, did we bring it there with one of our rovers? The second question would be, did Yeah, we... hello, I got a question. Oh, go ahead, please. Yes, um, so you keep referring to the solid frozen surface uh, on top of Europa as ice and, and the underneath fluid being uh, water. Yes. How can we confirm that? How can we confirm that the, the fluid is water and not some other chemical? So uh, I, by, by the studies that the Galileo spacecraft, uh, an instrumented probe did uh, return from, uh, from Europa, um, measuring the density uh, to very accurate degree, measuring the uh, surface chemistry to some degree, um, and the magnetic field. Measuring the magnetic field of Europa uh, was a large uh, piece of the puzzle because there has to be something conducting electricity below that surface of ice for the magnetic field at Europa to look like it does. And mm -hmm. 
given the density measurements and knowledge of the, the processes uh, that that implies, it means that there's most likely a, not just a water ocean, but a saltwater ocean at Europa. So it's you know, not fully confirmed, but I'd say that the community is 98 or 99% um, uh, of the opinion that, yeah, there's a large saltwater ocean out there. Okay. So the spacecraft is being assembled now. Uh, Michael has a question. Oh, uh, he yeah, said uh, uh, he doesn't have a audio, but he said approximately how old is the outer ice surface? How old is the outer ice surface? It probably dates back to um, the early days of Jupiter's formation. So three or four thousand million years is I'm not a scientist. I'm just an engineer who, who flies these things, but that's my understanding as well. Spacecraft is being assembled in Pasadena at JPL by Caltech people uh, who work for uh, Caltech under contract for NASA. There's a lot of international uh, collaboration in the sciences. The individual instruments are being built at various different facilities all over the country and um, in other countries. And they're all coming together to be assembled and tested uh, here in this, this picture was, is about two weeks old. That's, and I went by yesterday to look at it and it still looks about the same. Um, in, this, uh, in this image showing the Europa Clipper spacecraft, these red baffles down at the bottom are protecting the rocket engine modules. They're very fragile rocket uh, nozzles. Yes, question. Ah. Thank you. Um, how long before the launch does the assembly and testing and everything have to be completed? Oh, we'd like to have it wrapped up and packaged and ready to ship um, maybe half a year before the launch date, maybe a little bit more. So between now and then, there's a very detailed schedule of everything that has to happen. Yes. Repeat your question. Oh, I haven't seen it on the schedule yet. But what what uh, what system are we? SpaceX? Are we going to be glad ESA? You asked that. I, I need questions and answers to keep me uh, remembering what what to say and what not to say. Oh. So <laughs> no contractual there's, obligations. There's nothing not to say, and it's going to be a SpaceX Falcon Heavy. There was going to be a SpaceX Falcon Heavy launching the mission that I'm working mostly on, uh, most of my time these days is on the Psyche mission, going to an asteroid named Psyche. Um, but, uh, and it was going to launch on a Falcon Heavy. It was going, I called it the test launch for Europa because after liftoff, two of the Falcon 9s of that Heavy were going to return and land and then be used for Clippers launch. But, we scrubbed the launch. It's going to be at least another year before Psyche launch. So I don't know whether we're going to be testing Europa Clippers launch vehicle at all. At Cape Canaveral, yes. Yeah. So what else did I forget to say about this image? 
Um, if I understand correctly, I believe the Psyche mission is going to be the first mission on a SpaceX rocket that is interplanetary. Okay. Something like that. Okay. I hadn't, um, I hadn't heard that, but that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. So I guess I'm wondering, um, this might be the second, or maybe it depends on how successful that is. Yeah, I believe <laughs> Clipper, Europa Clipper should be the second. Here's a, uh, a picture of the deployed spacecraft, an artist's um, conception of it. The thing to notice is that the little spacecraft in between those wings is a large spacecraft. It's roughly the size of the Cassini spacecraft. And it's got all the instrumentation, all the propulsion systems and, and uh, thermal control systems and avionics. Um, that are like a Cassini, but a little bit better. Um, but where Cassini was powered using RTGs, these are the nuclear batteries or radioisotope thermal electric generator, thermoelectric generators, uh, they're kind of difficult to get these days. And there's the danger of launching uh, plutonium that's uh, uh, totally avoided by using solar panels. So Clipper will be articulating these 10 large solar panels um, about 100 feet across. So picture that, that spacecraft in the spacecraft assembly facility there with those huge solar panels dwarfing it. Um, they'll never be fully extended all at once. Question? Yes. What's the, what's the duration of the mission? The mission should last for about 50, five zero uh, flybys of Europa, which is, um, oh gee, I think it's- 200 days. Probably 200 days, 400 days. I, I don't have that. I think I might days. have that in a slide coming up, but it'll be a couple of years at least. Michael has a question, but he cannot speak out. So okay. what is the nature of the problem to view evidence of the electrostatic activity on a remote body such as Europa? And uh, will said activity potentially be in evidence from measurements taken by the Creeper mission? Okay, not, the not including the Corvette, <laughs> they were snapping. Okay. I'll say anyway. again the first part of the question. So what is the nature of the problem to view the evidence of electrostatic activity on a remote body such as Europa and uh, well that's the okay, first part. Okay I see. Yeah the, the problem is very much the same that Cassini faced as it was going around flying by the moons of Saturn. Um, it will be using spectroscopy, gravitational measurements, magnet magnetometer measurements of the magnetic field, um, imaging, and radar. Europa Clipper carries an ice penetrating radar. That's what those big long antennas are um, here that are coming off of the wings. Those are two radio frequency bands of radar that will be able to see how deep the ice is and see where the water interface is. This will be characterizing finally that really enigmatic moon. Here's the, uh, the flight plan. We're going to file it with the, the uh, local flight service station pretty soon. Um, kidding. 
we launch, whoops, wrong button. Here's my pointer. We launch 2024, October 6, and here's the depiction of Earth in Earth's orbit around the sun. The spacecraft will continue, of course, in the same direction that Earth is going after separating from Earth's gravity. And we'll go all the way around. Oh, no, first of all, it, it does a gravity assist at Mars. That's the next year. It's, it's pretty close, October uh, 24 through February of 25. It's a real fast trip to Mars. We'll fly by Mars, pick up a little bit of Mars's momentum from its orbit around the sun. That'll kick the spacecraft enough to get out this far, that extra blue loop, and then come screaming by Earth for a gravity assist at Earth, 2026, December 1st. That flyby will steal some of Earth's momentum as it goes around the sun and kick the spacecraft out on its path to arrive at Jupiter in 2030, April 11th. So since we're, we're doing a gravity assist, that's always a topic that, that I like to elaborate. A gravity assist doesn't use gravity to, to get its increase in speed. It steals momentum from the planet in the planet's path around the sun. It's got a huge amount of momentum. Nobody will ever know. You steal a little bit by connecting via the gravitational field. As long as you're going faster than the escape velocity of that planet that you're flying by, you'll absorb some of the mechanical energy uh, from the planet. Here's what it looks like in vectors. If you look at it just from the planet's point of view, so here's, here's Mars and spacecraft is coming past Mars. The velocity in and the velocity going out will be the same, just like rolling down on a bicycle to the bottom of a valley. And you, you coast back up again, you're going to run out of your momentum. But the planet is not stationary. It's going around the sun. So you get to take that red arrow, the planet's velocity as it goes around the sun, and you get to add that into your vectors so that the resulting vector leaving the planet is a whole lot more than what you had coming in. You've stolen some of that uh, red arrow uh, from, from the sun. So we have a question? Yeah. Yeah, uh, hello. I was wondering what level of radiation, ionizing radiation, X-rays and similar, are expected on the spacecraft compared to other locations and uh, previous spacecrafts? Yeah, great question. Again, thank you. You're leading me right through my talk perfectly. There's a nasty radiation field at Saturn and Europa um, orbits, did I say Saturn? I meant to say Jupiter, at Jupiter. Um, Europa orbits Jupiter within about the worst part some of the worst part of the radiation. It's particles trapped in Jupiter's enormous magnetic field that goes sweeping around at just ridiculous speeds and electrons spiraling around those magnetic lines 
near the speed of light. Uh, it's a nasty um, radiation environment. Um, I'll show a, a graphic that shows that a little bit better in a minute, but let me um, just mention all the um, investigations. Europa Clipper will be looking at the ice shell and ocean. It'll be looking at the composition. Again, a lot of spectroscopy here, uh, the geology with imaging. Um, activity, there's possibly a geyser spewing some water or other and other materials out through the shell of Europa. This has been detected right at the edge of the sensitivity of the Hubble Space Telescope, but it looks like they're plumes of water. Europa Clipper will try to confirm that, and if they do exist, um, fly through the plumes and collect that material in its mass spectrometers. It's got two very, very capable mass spectrometers on board to determine what's in that, in that plume coming out, what kind of chemicals. Uh, Cassini did that at Saturn when we discovered that this little unsuspecting moon called Enceladus was erupting a, a plume of water, free samples out into space. The science community said, hey, let's fly through it. Our navigators put us 25 kilometers off the surface of this little body Enceladus. It's only 500 kilometers wide. And this is a million kilometers away. No, a billion kilometers away. <laughs> and our mass spectrometers on Cassini uh, analyzed what was in, in the plume, mostly water, salt water, lots of other chemistry. So Europa Clipper will be doing the same thing and using radar. Yes. Uh -huh. No, that's the big question. And the radar on Europa Clipper can, can we repeat the question? Oh, because I'm sorry. Yeah. Online. How thick is the ice shell on Europa? And the answer is we don't know. There are a lot of guesses, a lot of good estimates, but your uh, Europa Clipper with its radar, ice penetrating radar, will narrow down the uncertainties in that question. Yeah. Also, Dave, uh, I was wondering, so the plume that you're flying through, you're going to be going pretty fast. It's going to be icy. Like, are there dangers associated with that? Are you doing that end of the mission? Like, what's... Yeah, dangers uh, flying through a plume. Um, probably not. Uh, we'll be coming in low and hot, very fast, interplanetary speeds. Um, so, you know, if there are ice chunks coming out, then okay, it's been nice. But... Uh, Probably not. As with Europa, uh, as with Enceladus and uh, Cassini, um, we flew as low as we could get and there was no danger. We could see a little bit of torque on the spacecraft um, from the attitude control telemetry, but nothing much. Did you have a question? Does Europa have an atmosphere? And it's basically no, unless there's some sputtering chemicals or that plume, that would be the only kind of atmosphere. So these are the instruments. Um, mass specs is the, the very sensitive mass spectrometer that can determine the nature of elements and many, many compounds uh, in the samples that it sees. SUDA is another, it's the surface dust analyzer. It'll be concentrating on, on uh, 
material that may be coming off of the surface of Europa. It's another very sensitive mass spectrometer type instrument with extra capabilities. Uh, the magnetometer, just like all spacecraft out there carry, Voyager had a boom with magnetometers on it. The boom keeps the magnetometer instruments <clears throat> away from noise, magnetic noise uh, on the spacecraft. <clears throat> There's PIMS, the plasma instrument for magnetic sounding, measuring the, the nature of the plasma environment. Uh, there's remote sensing instruments, the UVS ultraviolet spectrometer, uh, spectrograph, the imaging system, the uh, mapping imaging spectrometer, MISE. Uh, there's ethemis, this is the thermal emission imaging system. And the ice penetrating radar. Its acronym is REASON, and I will have to remind myself by looking it up what exactly the, the letters in this acronym are, but it's really a backronym. This is the reason for flying Europa. Okay, question. Yeah, Ethemus. Yeah. Hi, my name is Carlos Peralta. I'm actually the co-architect and co-designer of the ETHIMS instrument. Yes. And it's been a, a, for the earlier comment about the EMI, this is probably the highest EMI environment I had designed it is. to ever. Yes. In fact, JPL personnel had me redesign the design twice. You had to redesign the ETHIMS twice? Because of the radiation components uh -huh. that are required for, for this mission. Uh -huh. Our imaging was only like nine hours uh, on the surface of the moon during each orbit bypass. During each one, yep. right. Right, they're all limited to very short windows of observation. And that's because of the radiation. Correct. So, um, but here's the picture of the magnetic fields that are, are so enormous. And, and this, this little animation shows Europa Clipper diving in towards Jupiter. Here it comes in from Apoapsis. It's gonna whip around Jupiter. And you can see the instrument up here logging uh, the radiation dose. And it's building up, um, here's 6 million rads, 7 million, 8 million rads. Um, oh no, that's, yeah, millions. No, I'm sorry, that was 100,000. Now it's millions, 1.3 million rad. So each time it comes zipping through, it's picking up a dose that would probably kill a human right away. but Everything, Ethemus, thank you for the redesigns. Uh, everything on board is being developed to be able to withstand this constant exposure. But it's not as constant as if it were an orbiter spacecraft orbiting Europa. If we put a spacecraft to orbit Europa, it'd just live its life very briefly in that radiation field. But this way, you come dashing through one of the, uh, the late scientists who was working on, on the proposals likened it to the way she would, as a kid, run through the sprinkler in the backyard in a hot day. You'd go running in and get all wet, get that sprinkling all over you, but you, you didn't want to stay there. You wanted to run through and come back out. We tend to design uh, based on a certain mission life cycle profile, right? Uh -huh. When it comes to these missions. 
So um, if, if, and most of the times I tend to find that we do with an industry, if it exceeds the mission profile, does it become a funding issue for you guys to be able to continue in orbit and collect data? That's always the thing. Yeah, uh, Voyager was only funded to go from 1977 to 1980 as it flew by Saturn. It was the Voyager Jupiter Saturn mission, Mariner Jupiter Saturn it was called. And then with all the success and the fine healthy spacecraft, we begged NASA to go, hey, can, we're on this path. We just happened to have selected a path that will take us out to Uranus with the gravity assist here at Saturn. Go have some more money. And they said, okay, here's a, here's a little. And we funded the, the Uranus flyby. Same thing, healthy spacecraft, hey, NASA. And depending on the success of the mission, you have a, a platform to stand on to ask for extensions. Okay, thank you. Uh, is it Dave? Yeah. Um, some attendee asked, but uh, we don't have to do that. Is as I mentioned, they could not see the slide very well oh. uh, through the camera, and we mentioned we, we can oh, log my... into on Zoom and share also on Zoom. Do you oh. do you want to pause like a one minute or two minutes and share, or you want to continue with the talk? Um, I'm almost to the end. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. I thought we had. Oh, okay. Well. No, don't worry. We can, we can do it later. Okay, I'm I'm sorry. I thought we were gonna. All right, don't pre-proceed. Okay. I just reflect the question. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So here's the the pattern of the the different flybys um, that uh, will cover the surface of uh, of Europa. We come zipping through at altitudes that range from twenty five out to a thousand kilometers for all the different instruments to be able to function. Yes. Question. Dosage, the um, uh, the prob like the ultimate limiting factor in the, the radiation of the dosage craft. probably would be the limiting factor. Okay, that's my guess. So 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 question. So you showed flybys, uh, you know, on this. Uh, this is a very, as it says, innovative design. But some orbit. Are you in a Molonia orbit type of orbit around the uh, Europa uh, Europa itself, or no? That would the radiation in there would kill it. However, there is being planned a lander, a Europa lander to go out and um, actually land on this, this body as it's orbiting Jupiter. Um, its lifetime will be severely limited because of the radiation. But so, so, so you're orbiting Jupiter? Yes, orbiting Jupiter and flying. Oh, by, okay. And flying, and flying by, by Europa. Okay. Right. You answer the question. Right. Thank you. Good. Okay, and that's that's basically what we did at Saturn. We orbited Saturn yeah, uh, with the Cassini right. spacecraft, and we flew by Titan every orbit. Yeah, um, that gave us a gravity assist to help shape the next orbits, but it also gave us a really good uh, reconnaissance of the the wonderful moon Titan with an atmosphere. The atmosphere at Titan, Saturn's moon Titan, is thicker than Earth's atmosphere. It's got lakes on the surface it's an amazing place so same kind of approach orbiting the main body jupiter flying by the target of interest and taking all the data that you can during the few short hours that you spend flying by uh, the deep space network of course is our partner in uh, in flying a mission like this 
Um, this is the thousands of tons, actually millions of tons of concrete and steel that are part of every little spacecraft. We couldn't operate these tiny little lightweight spacecraft at Europa or at Saturn or out outer solar system, Mars or anywhere without the deep space network for tracking, for navigation. Um, let's see, Ken, how are we doing on time? Should I, should I be wrapping up in five minutes or? Okay, good. So I love to belabor this. The DSN is so amazingly sensitive. Um, the tracking data that we use to give the, the, the navigators use to um, estimate the trajectory of the spacecraft. The measurements from the deep space network to the far distant spacecraft can nail down the distance to within a meter. So it's not only what part of the uh, no, where is your spacecraft, but where is the antenna on your spacecraft? And the speed, you have to measure the speed just using the Doppler shift, that's all. And they can, they can measure the speed of the spacecraft down to hundredths of a millimeter per second. And I like to belabor this. If I hold my hands one meter apart, how long will it take me to clap my hands together if I clap them together at the rate of one millimeter per second? Ready? Here we go. Sure, it'll take a thousand seconds. So it's that tiny increment of speed that you measure with the deep space network. And not only that tiny increment, but a hundredth of that increment hundredth of a millimeter per second out at the distance of Jupiter or Saturn or more. So those data are given to the navigation team to do very accurate nav navigation. Telemetry, the ones and zeros, this is the digital connection to your Themis instrument, to the imaging instrument, uh, to all the instruments. They build packets of data and they send it down through telemetry. Also, the thermal and the electrical subsystems all build packets of data about how the spacecraft is doing. What is the health? What are the temperatures everywhere? That's all, all done in uh, telemetry. Dave. The ones and zeros. Yes. Dave, you reminded me of Space Odyssey 2010, the year uh, we went back when the movie starts uh -oh. and they're at DSN. Yeah. So my question um, what are the latency rates? What type of communication? I don't think this is comm, right? This is, this is radio, right? It's radio. It radio. So right. um, what are our latency rates? And then I suspect when we receive the data, it still has to be processed, yes. coagulated, extrapolated, and yes. then built into some kind so of site the, the picture. The raw telemetry dates, if you're counting bits per second, it's going to be in the hundreds of thousands of bits per second. Good, substantial data rate to get all your, your ones and zeros back. The, uh, see, I was going to say something else about that. Uh, oh, and of course, there's the light time. Uh, if you send a signal to a spacecraft at Earth's moon, it takes about one and a half seconds to get there. To send a, space, a signal to a spacecraft orbiting Jupiter is more like 40 minutes. Out at Saturn, it took three hours to get a, a signal there and back. It was a, an enormous delay. So we've got tracking and telemetry and commanding. If we want to 
send up instructions here do this list of instructions for the next week or for the next encounter with uh, Europa here's the list do these things and they're all timed commands and you can also do flight software updates uh, all these instruments doesn't have uh, 10 or more instruments on the spacecraft all have their own computers they all get updates to their onboard software but it's very carefully planned it won't just hit them hey you have to download a Then there's radio science that the Deep Space Network provides, and that's using the radio link itself to pass through atmospheres or plumes or, or rings when you're out at Saturn or, or Jupiter. Jupiter has a ring. And observing the effects, physical effects, on the radio signal itself. And you can also use this radio science to measure the gravitational field of the object. And then there's VLBI, a very long baseline interferometry, which the navigators will be using uh, to pinpoint the north-south location of the spacecraft, mostly. Uh, that's, that's a real involved, um, not only a mouthful to say, but uh, tremendous uh, science and engineering connected with VLBI. But the Deep Space Network does it all, and it's all very necessary to fly these missions. So, question. I did. So I was wondering with like the rotation rate of the earth and like you probably have a pretty narrow beam width, like how do you make sure that you're pointing that such a large? Yeah. Thing? How do you, how do you point that antenna properly? And uh, well, that's all um, just basic um, knowledge of, of planetary motion, but there's also what frequency do you transmit to the spacecraft? so that when the spacecraft sees your frequency, your radio signal coming, it's in a frequency band that it can receive. Otherwise, it's altered by the rotation of the Earth, with the Doppler shift increasing and decreasing as the antenna moves towards and away from, uh, from Earth's rotation. Uh, Earth's travel around the sun introduces a large amount of Doppler shift. So that's all figured out and backed out. So you transmit at this frequency, it, it's called XA frequency. It gets to the spacecraft right where the spacecraft is listening, right at that tone that it can hear. Great questions. And I'm gonna end up uh, talking about all the different stars that you see at night. We didn't know a couple of decades ago or one decade ago even, how many of them had planets. But now, thanks to missions uh, such as the Kepler mission that imaged 150,000 stars for a long time, it detected planets around other stars. So far, the count of exoplanets, that is planets around other stars than the sun, it's up around 5,000 confirmed exoplanets with another 5,000 or so still waiting to see that several year repeat of a planet going around its star. And the answer here is most of the stars that you see have a planetary system. Now, we know that physics works, chemistry works, geology works. Is there biology in the universe? Is, is biology a fundamental part of 
the stars that we see everywhere. And that, that means galaxies as well. Or is life on Earth a very, very rare thing? And we're one of the only or few examples. So with that, I want to point out that you should go to europa.nasa.gov. And there are places to look on Twitter and Facebook. And what's that last one down there? Some other social media, Instagram? Yeah, I think that's Instagram. So follow along, please. And with that, I want to thank you for your attention. Great, thank you. Great audience. Yeah. Um, it's, um, I don't know. It's, it's more than a week, probably less than a couple of months. I, I don't know. Yeah. So those who are here were lucky enough to get stickers. So can you explain what they mean and the names? Oh, oh so okay. Madrid, You're Goldstone, and Canberra. Space Network stickers. Yeah. The, uh, the blue one says Madrid on it. it. has a picture of an antenna. And uh, probably if you go to deepspace.jplnasa.gov, you can probably find a way to download more of them. These are the names of the antennas, correct? Yes. Around the Earth, the Deep Space Network has three locations where, as the Earth turns, at least one station can have a view of Mars or Voyager or Europa Clipper. <clears throat> and those three locations are Madrid, Spain, Canberra, Australia, and just outside of Barstow here in California is the Goldstone facility. So as the Earth turns, uh, some of the facilities at each of those locations can do command tracking telemetry of our spacecraft. I have a question. Um, okay, so you showed the, uh, the visual of uh, how much radiation the spacecraft would get uh, just by doing a couple of passbys of Europa. Yeah. Um, my question is, is that not like a pretty big red flag of indication that there might not be life there? If it would be... Oh, great question. Yeah. Um, life and the radiation. Well, there used to be the Goldilocks characterization. When you're talking about, is there life on a planet? You, you want to consider, is the planet too close to the star where it's too warm? Is it too far from the star where it's too cold? Or is it going to be just right where water can form as it does here on this planet <clears throat> on the surface? Well, that Goldilocks question has to be expanded now that we know that there are oceans other places in our solar system besides on the surface. That thick icy shell at Europa is an effective shield for all of the radiation. And it might drive chemistry on the surface that will provide oxygen if there's an exchange between the surface and the ocean. So yes, anything on the surface of Europa will be fried pretty quick. But you also- Below that ice, the ice is a good shield 
You filthy. also mentioned that the uh, you don't exactly know how thick it is. That's right. So so there's like a metric like, oh, if we find out that it's X amount of thick, then there might be life down there. Or if it's thin, it'd be like, oh. Well, these are all, these are all questions that we're going after. Um, chances are it's thick enough that it provides thorough safety from the radiation for any uh, life that might be um, in that ocean. Yes, yes, water water would be a very good um, buffer, a shield. So you're talking about spacecraft that are carrying humans uh, might use water uh, as a shield. Yeah, so the frozen water is probably a very good shield. Submarines, there are so many studies of how to put a submarine below the ice on Europa. Get down oh. there and see what is down there. We have a question from uh, Colonel Shortis. Uh, Colonel, do you, do you want to try it again? I know it was microphone was noisy, but could you try it again? Go ahead. Yeah, uh, is, it, is it still noisy? Go ahead. I don't know if you can hear me okay. Is it, is it okay? Uh, thank you very much for your presentation, sir. Um, I'm wondering, are there any instruments uh, on board uh, Clipper uh, that can obtain data on the stability of Europa's ice sheet as a function of time uh, due to tidal, tidal forces from Jupiter itself? Mm, good question. And these would you know, like, to, like to know about is, if there is variability, both longitudinally and on a latitude basis as well. Yes, okay. Um, things like pressure, uplifting, those sorts of physical effects. Yeah, uh, great question. Again, uh, thanks for the great question. As Jupiter has its moons going around it, Io, Europa, and Ganymede, I mentioned they're in resonance. Every orbit that Europa makes, Io has made two. And so they line up periodically. And the gravitational forces, that and the fact that it's a, a fairly elliptical orbit, not perfectly circular, <clears throat> means that Europa's shell is going to be flexing. And I believe the amount of flexing is known, or there's a good um, uh, constraint on how much it is. And it's, it's a lot. It's, I forget whether it's meters or tens of meters, uh, but there is a lot of flexing. And so Europa Clipper is going to be investigating. One of the things that it wants to investigate is the geology of the surface. What's happening? What's changing? Do you see any changes happening? Uh, crap, cracks forming or moving? So yeah, that's going to be one of the big questions for the planetary geologists. <coughs> uh -huh. Go ahead. Oh, does it give them the length of the mission? Uh, oh, oh, darn. <laughs> Hello? Yes. Anybody hear me? Hello, uh, I've got a question uh, Hello? regarding. Okay, stand by. 
Yeah, go hi. Go ahead online. This is Lawrence Klesnitz. Yes, go ahead. Uh, by the way, Dr. Klesnitz was going to be the speaker next Saturday. He's a former Apollo engineer ah. designing the space suit. Marvelous. Yeah. Go ahead. Dr. Klesnitz. Yeah, hi. I have two questions. The first uh, is, uh, is the reasoning be behind the liquid water interface, the fact that uh, Europa uh, creates a lot of friction going around the surface of uh, Jupiter, and that uh, that frictional heating is what's keeping the temperature warm enough to keep the uh, water or to melt the ice and keep it liquid. And the second question is, was any thought given to dropping a probe similar to uh, Huygens? I know there's no atmosphere to, to, to help deorbit the probe. Uh, it, it, it probably might not survive a crash unless you had engines and that would so, yeah, great. the weight and the expense. Great, great questions again. Thank you. Uh, the answer is yes and yes. There is a whole lot of tidal flexing that the planetary geology scientists um, have quantified to understand that, yes, that would be the reason that the flexing of the, plan of the body as it goes around uh, Jupiter in in resonance with IO and with Ganymede, that gives enough flexing to keep it liquid. Just as within the orbit, the orbit of IO going around Jupiter, the flexing that IO receives, and again, this is another body about the same size as the Earth's moon, a little bit larger. <clears throat> IO's flexing is so extreme that it's boiled off all the water. And the only thing left to express is sulfur and probably other other chemicals. So yes, there's a lot of flexing and that's what keeps the, uh, the water, the oceans liquid. And um, the other question, um, yes, we, uh, there have been lots of proposals and studies ongoing as well to put something on Europa, to send a probe. We decided to keep it separate from this Jupiter orbiting uh, Europa Clipper, just to get a reconnaissance as the first priority. Um, but there is an active um, uh, study right now. It's not a funded mission yet uh, to put a lander there. And um, there must be some way to get through the ice. And so engineers and scientists and various different teams around the world are coming up with ideas. I've seen some of them on how to get a uh, a submarine, robotic submarine, down through the ice. But Europa Clipper will characterize how thick the ice shell is, do reconnaissance of places that might be good to land and try things like that. Uh, but it's not part of uh, something that we would carry, like Cassini carried the Huygens probe, which separated from Cassini and went parachuting down through Titan's uh, amazing atmosphere out at the Saturn system. Great questions. Who's got a? Right. Nobody has a right. dumb question. Anybody so, have a dumb question? <laughs> so my question. I've got uh, one more to add. Oh, okay. Go ahead, please. Yeah. Uh, considering the timeline between getting the uh, Clipper there, getting data back, and then doing a, a, a second mission to drop uh, whatever probe you want, we're probably looking into the 2040s. Is it feasible to actually conduct? such uh, 
such a mission for Mars. Yes, there may well, very well be humans on Mars by the time all this happens. This is a, we're talking about a long time in the future. Right. That's one of the problems with these, these missions. I might be an old man by the time uh, <laughs> a lander happens at Europa. So, yeah, that's, that's one of the major um, um, facets. Um, how long can the, uh, the ground team uh, stay alive and, and educated enough to do these missions? And so there's constantly a flux of, of new engineers and new scientists coming into these things. Ed Stone joined the uh, Voyager um, project well before launch. Launch was in 1977. Uh, Ed probably joined um, six or eight years before that as the project scientist. And now 45 years later, Ed Stone is still the project scientist on Voyager making enormous discoveries in interplanetary space no, excuse me, interstellar space. Voyager 1 and 2 are now in, in what's characterized as interstellar space. He's getting old too, just like me. Okay, I'm sorry, go ahead. Right, so my question, um, orbital insertion is April 2030. So when would we see the data validate and verify to some extent? Oh, the that? data will be back 40 minutes later. Uh, well, given that delay in the speed of light, the navigators will be watching the curve of the Doppler signal uh, following a predicted line. And we'll know basically in real time, real time meaning as close as you can get, but for the speed of light. And then the, the uh, ones and zeros, images, magnetometer readings, whatnot, they'll be coming back uh, within hours and then again and again and again as the 50 or so orbits of, uh, of Jupiter progress. Uh -huh. uh, microphone. This is one of those dumb questions oh, that you're seeking. Finally. So you mentioned that some of the people that um, have been working, that have provided insight on this mission have been involved in studying Jupiter for like 40 years, right? Yeah. So, um, this is somewhat a, a bit of an extension to that. So I guess my question is, what was the initial purpose of sending the Voyager spacecraft? What did they want to discover? And um, what do they want to discover? Well, they want to discover now that there's life, but I guess um, what, if this is like an extension of that and they're still studying it, why, what is the fascination of Jupiter? What was the fascination of Jupiter back then? And what's the, fa what's the fascination now that the same people want to continue studying it? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. Okay. Um, your, your mileage may vary, but I, I think that's a great question. And I could go on for a long time talking about it. The purpose of, of, Voyager and the one before that pioneer was to just see what's out there. Get a picture of our backyard. What's in our backyard of a solar system? Um, pioneer 10 and 11 launched in early 1974, 75, I think it was, went straight past Jupiter 
Um, it had some instruments on it. One of the big questions is, can we get through the asteroid belt okay, or are we going to just get clobbered on the way? The answer was, sure, it's free and easy to get through the asteroid belt out to Jupiter. Uh, the only instruments on Pioneer were rudimentary. The imaging system was a photometer on the side of the spacecraft. The spacecraft constantly rotated. And as the photometer rotated past views of Jupiter and Io and Europa and the other objects, it would make quick measurements of the brightness of the, the uh, returns, very rudimentary imaging. But the Voyagers were designed to go, okay, we know we can get something out there. The asteroid belt isn't gonna be a prohibitive uh, wall for us. Let's put TV cameras on something, send it out so we can actually see these moons and, and clouds on Jupiter and, and measure the magnetic fields. Let's get more data about what's in our own solar system. So just a basic reconnaissance of what's out there in our local stellar environment, solar environment. Um, of course, TV cameras weren't the only thing. They had ultraviolet, infrared, radio sensing, gravitational magnetic sensing. The Voyagers were equipped to find out everything that the planetary science community wanted to know and stumbled into the knowledge that every world is different. Um, it's building. And if, so if you're a young uh, uh, planetary science uh, student or scientist or engineer involved in any of this, um, you've got the, the knowledge to build on, to go ask new questions and figure out how to answer them. It online. Oh, Colonel, uh, go ahead. You, Emil, you, you have another question. Go ahead. Uh, yes. Uh, are there any studies underway comparing uh, uh, lander mission to Enceladus with a lander mission to Europa with respect to variations in radiation levels that they have experienced, uh, transit times to those targets, and ease of acquisition of science at those two targets? Enceladus. I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding. I heard the word Enceladus. Yeah, he was saying, are there any study underway comparing a lander mission to Enceladus with a lander mission to Europa with respect to radiation levels, transit times, and acquisition of science at those two ocean or targets? Oh, okay. Um, I don't know the details, but I know that there are missions being studied to go out and investigate Saturn's moon Enceladus some more because it's giving free samples of what's in its ocean. And what's in its ocean, according to what the Cassini spacecraft determined with its instruments, is indication of subsea thermal venting, just like the volcanoes underwater here on Earth. The chemistry that, that Cassini collected at that weird little moon Enceladus um, is raising so many more questions that, that there's, there's going to be something going back out there. And there are studies, the European Space Agency, I believe, is doing some studies on getting back out to Enceladus. As far as a lander, I don't know about Enceladus landing out at the Saturn system, but 
there is there are studies going on uh, for Europa landers. Colonel, uh, is okay. Uh, any further question? Uh, yes. Uh, it just appears to me that from an engineering standpoint, uh, you want to get on surfaces and obtain samples from the ocean above. And uh, uh, from an engineering perspective, uh, because of the radiation levels of Jupiter versus uh, uh, Saturn, it would be an easier task to try to attempt uh, uh, searching for that Enceladus as opposed to. Well, the signal to noise ratio is not really good for my hearing of the questions, but there's, there is an, an enormous radiation difference. Saturn is, the Saturn system is a benign environment for anything that wants to go to Titan or to Enceladus. Oh, by the way, there is a Titan project that's going to, to put a quadcopter, actually it's an octocopter, in the atmosphere of Titan to fly around and investigate the uh, surface, surface of Saturn's great big moon Titan with its thick atmosphere. As far as, uh, uh, Euro, as, far as Europa, um, yeah, the, the radiation is a giant constraint and anything that, that's designed to land or burrow on uh, Europa is going to have to be short-lived probably and have a lot of uh, uh, tactic to, to prevent damage from the, the Jupiter radiation. I'm not sure if that addresses your question because I couldn't hear it very well. Is that uh, answering your question? Can, anybody, anybody can you hear me better now? Okay, go ahead. Oh, wait, here comes the microphone. Source of the radiation. Uh, the source of the radiation is Jupiter's gigantic uh, magnetic field. Um, electrons are trapped along the field lines, whipping around Jupiter. Uh, the electrons are approaching the speed of light and they emit enormous amounts of energy. Um, the magnetic field itself sweeps around a huge portion, volume of space. Every 10 or 11 hours as Jupiter rotates and particles that are trapped in the magnetic field are not only um, at very high energies to begin with, but they slam into your spacecraft as that field sweeps around and impact. A lot of the ions that are being picked up by the magnetic field of Jupiter are coming out of Io, the volcanoes emitting uh, sulfur and other chemicals uh, out into uh, the interplanetary space around Jupiter to get, well, ions have to obey a magnetic field and so they get picked up and swept around. So uh, it's Jupiter and it's enormous magnetic field that are the source of that radiation. Yeah. Well, just your, your, your clippers, oh. obviously there for Europa, but it's gonna be doing some flybys fairly close to the other moons of Jupiter. Is it gonna do any um, 
science on those? Yeah, um, we're using flybys of the big moon, Ganymede, the biggest moon in the solar system, mainly for gravity assists to shape the orbit of Clipper as it goes around uh, Jupiter. Now, during those approaches and departures from Ganymede, yeah, we'll take some science. There's an ocean there at Ganymede as well. Um, thinking, let me let me um, belabor that ocean at Ganymede a little bit. Um, whereas on Europa, the ocean is in between a rock layer and the surface ice. At Ganymede, it goes from the core to a rocky layer to an ice layer, and then the liquid ocean, and then the surface uh, frozen. Uh, water ice. So on Ganymede, the, the ocean is most likely fresh water and not conductive for uh, generating its own magnetic field as much as Europa, and probably without the nutrients that come out of the rock uh, and the energy that comes out of the rock, uh, which is the case at Europa. So the ocean at, at Ganymede, it's much farther down through a thicker crust and it's salt, it's uh, freshwater, and it's not very accessible. So there's not a whole lot we can learn about that ocean, except maybe characterize its, its mass and density and location in there. But um, the other moons, Callisto, I don't think we're going to do much science at Callisto. And we're, we're going to try to stay away from Io, the source of all those uh, sulfur ions. So it's it's going to be Europa investigations. A little bit of passing science, maybe, if we're funded, to look at Ganymede, which will shape the orbit. At, out at Saturn, we used Titan gravity flybys, gravity assist flybys, to change not only the timing of each orbit, but also the inclination. And you can crank the inclination up to nearly a polar orbit just using flybys of the moons. So Ganymede will give a lot of control to the uh, flight planners, mission planners, and, and, uh, and get us uh, better focused on Europa. Yes, do you have the, the mic? Go back to high school here. But um, so a lot of words we're throwing around are, you know, water, salt water. So everything is a basis of carbon-based, right? Kind of carbon-based understanding or a carbon-based life form. Yeah. Uh, would we even know how to detect if it was like a silica-based type of life form? Great or questions. How the heck would we go down yeah. that path? Over. Yeah. How do you know? And, and looking out to the Saturn system at, at Titan, there might be hydrogen-based uh, life that's that's eating or producing methane from from ingesting hydrogen. What the thinking is with Europa Clipper is. We're looking for, okay, we know we have one data point. We have life on Earth, and we know how life on Earth works, and it needs water and carbon. Well, there are other places in our own solar system with lots of water and carbon and other nutrients and energy sources. So it's basically looking for habitable conditions for life as we know it. And we don't know if there's anything really out there in the ocean, but we're looking for things that we know will be uh, places that, that life as we know it could exist. Life as we don't know it is another field 
Um, very interesting. There, there are science teams talking about uh, uh, just such a thing on Titan. Yeah, hi, I'd like to follow up on that question. Uh, Viking tried to answer these questions uh, in the 70s and with three different life, search for life experiments. And it ended up being extremely controversial. And uh, for instance, I was personal friends with Gil Levin who had the labeled release experiment on Viking. And to, until his death, he swore he found life. And a bunch of other people swore he didn't. There have been books written about this and uh, lots of stuff. So, so the, the difficulty of trying to track carbon-based life is enormous. And is. Um, now we're looking at uh, biosignatures and, and other ways of doing it. Given that kind of difficulty, just in finding life like our own, uh, you better really have a pretty good idea what you're doing before you spend millions of dollars to do a search for life experiment. It's really, really hard. Any uh, astrobiologist will tell you that. Yes. So I don't know what yeah. the plan is. Yeah, well, the plan is to gather data and, and, yeah. right. and, and evaluate the data. Um, are there things on the surface? Are there any organic compounds coming out of the ocean that are evaporating in the, on the surface of, of Europa? Could they point to some sort of um, biological activity going on. But uh, yeah, I followed the Viking uh, with its Mars landing ex experiment on the surface of Mars um, and the controversy, um, the ambiguities in the detection experiments. So yeah, it, it's an enormously complicated uh, field of study. And then the other question, could you, could you elaborate on the difficulty of landing something on Europa given there's no atmosphere to give you braking and, uh, and you, you've got to probably have engines and, and uh, even, even a camera. What would a camera resolve on the surface that, that the orbital pictures won't considering it's, it's an icy crust? Oh, great. So just to land on the surface. Great question, great question. And, um... I love to speculate, and that's that's all it can be is speculation. But to get to the surface of Europa, you'd probably have to enter orbit at Jupiter first to at least reduce your your speed of, of hitting Europa uh, by doing Ganymede flybys and reducing your your orbital speed, your orbital energy, and then from that lower speed, try to put something on the surface of Europa, and it's only rockets. You'd have to carry uh, rockets with, with probably a whole lot of propellant to be able to take up all that energy, slow you down from Jupiter orbital speeds to nothing, no speed at all at the surface of Jupiter. It's all rockets and navigation, and then radiation protection as well. Um, I had a question about the uh, the power system. So earlier you mentioned that you're using solar panels instead of RTGs. Um, what are some of the challenges that you expect to face um, using solar panels that far away from the sun? Has that ever been done before and by another huge. spacecraft? Yes, or? it's being done right now. The Juno spacecraft is orbiting Jupiter right now, um, taking... Um, measurements in a polar orbit going around Jupiter's poles 
in a long, elongated elliptical orbit. And it will come in, zip around the poles, um, measure the gravitational field, the gravitational structure of Jupiter itself, and measures the magnetic environment. It's also got a, uh, an infrared radiometer, uh, not microwave. It's a microwave radiometer, um, large instrument that's, that's mapping the water um, located in Jupiter's atmosphere. And that's using three huge solar panel wings, just the same uh, solar panel technology that Europa Clipper will be using. Um, now, Juno has those three solar panel wings rotating. And so its attitude control, its attitude stability is based on the gyroscopic motion of the, the rotating spacecraft. On Europa Clipper, it's going to be three axis stabilized by using reaction wheels and thrusters, very much like um, Cassini did. Um, Voyager uses thrusters to manage its attitude control. And so the problem with the solar panels on Europa Clipper is they're huge, 100 feet wide. There's a lot of uh, angular momentum you have to overcome. If you want to turn the spacecraft this way, you got to crank up your speed to sweep the solar panels around. So the aim is going to be try to minimize various different ways that you turn the spacecraft um, to minimize having to flop those huge wings around a lot. So it's a different way of looking at it, but uh, the same uh, electrical technology anyway. Uh, I've got one more. Um, the radiation uh, uh, attitudes in, in this country have changed dramatically since uh, Chernobyl and Fukushima and, and all these kind of places. Uh, the idea is that RTG seemed to be a much better way to go than solar panels. And I'm, I'm surprised that, uh, what could you describe this, the struggle you guys went through in one versus the other? Um, be interesting to know. I, I don't know a lot about the studies that were, were going on, but I do know that Cassini, which is powered by RTGs, had a lot of protests that almost prevented Cassini's launch in 1997. Um, and it's, it's good to be very careful and worried about uh, the plutonium in an RTG. Um, plutonium is nasty stuff. In the RTGs that are used on Voyager and Cassini and uh, Galileo that, that orbited Jupiter, uh, the RTGs are built in such a way that they can survive a launch accident without dispersing any of the plutonium. Um, it's in hard cased in, in ceramic pellets and then uh, encased in carbon and steel and I don't know what else um, enclosures to be able to survive an accident at launch. Um, nonetheless, Cassini was almost prevented from launching uh, by the protests in the courts. I think RTGs are a fine use of nuclear power. That's my personal um, opinion, but then I'm biased. But then solar panels, uh, while they might be unwieldy, um, 
they're safe. They're, they're, they're no uh, launch safety concerns. Great question. Thank you. Uh, actually, Colonel Short is, is an expert, you know, in the nuclear propulsion. Ah. So, uh, but unfortunately, he has some noise issue on his end oh. for, a, for the microphone. The... Yeah, I tried to get him on the video, but he didn't oh, okay. uh, join. But uh, 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 we can. Uh, so anybody online has more questions? I think there is a question from Randy. He was involved with mass spec for the APL for reliability analysis. Uh, if you want to say a few words, and uh, Randall asked about exactly what Dr. Kastner mentioned about Fukushima radiation hardening. Uh -huh. uh -huh. Do you want to say something, Randy and Randall? Okay, if not, I think we, we time is uh, almost uh, up, but we'll keep, we'll keep the online session open during the network session. If you want to join us by by microphone or yeah. video. Oh, uh, can you hear me okay, Ken? Yeah, that's, it's still noisy though. We can hear Ken, you. Can you hear me? This is Joe It's Colonel Schultes, yeah. Okay. A little bit too loud for the... Uh... Uh, it's a commentary on the uh, concern uh, a protest was associated flyby. Uh, a close flyby to attain a gravity assist. Um, it was just a process for death. They couldn't have stopped the mission. I'm sorry. To yeah, I'd like to add one thing to that. Is that uh, a, a comment, actually. If you haven't read it, there's a book called Midnight at Chernobyl, by Adam, uh, a best-selling book by Adam Higginbottom. And it, it goes through... Uh, it goes through the implications of that whole accident. And at the end of the day, uh, what he says is that the actual number of lives impacted and lost by everything that happened at Chernobyl wouldn't amount to the damage we do in one day by producing energy the conventional way that we do. So, he, he, so it's, it's a massively sensitive, overblown topic. This is his opinion and my opinion, uh, and a lot of people's opinion, and I, I think the the acceptance of nuclear energy, especially with um, safety uh, enhancements that have taken place since then, is going to make these kind of missions much more practical uh, than, than they have been in the past. I, I appreciate that comment. Uh, was there someone else? Okay, so Rand Randy, you don't want to say anything? Randall? David? No? Uh, again, as I said, uh, we'll keep the session open. So you're welcome to stay during the worker session. You can join us with video. If you let us know or audio, we can still chat. Uh, but we is already 90 minutes. Unless you have any question, we'll conclude the session uh, here. But we'll go into networking. All right. Any more questions online? All right. So any questions here locally? Oh, Mike has a Good, question. Um, I just wanted to piggyback on what we were talking about earlier about finding life on other planets. Um, it was, we had a question earlier about what kind of life we might find, whether it could be carbon-based or silicon-based. And then he brought up how um, we've had these, we've had missions before that have tried to find answers to these and they've been somewhat controversial. So my question is, can't we make inferences on what is what is that whether there's life out there based on what we know here on earth and previous and just 
our general understanding of science, because you're, you mentioned earlier, when somebody asked earlier about how do we know that there's water on Europa, you mentioned we, we, we don't know from physically looking, we know from the science that we have learned and discovered. Can't we use the same science that we know, like just like evolutionary theory of how, you know, we mm -hmm. evolved, how we evolved here on earth. Can't we make inferences whether there's life out there or not? Great, great question, I think. And that's precisely what Europa Clipper is going to try to do is, is to confirm whether there's a habitat for life as we know it, for inference of, of what might be under there. Uh, Europa's not, Clipper is not gonna be looking for life itself, but maybe signs of possible uh, evidence on the surface. But uh, over and, and above that is, is it truly habitable? The science that Europa Clipper will collect should answer the question, yay or nay, is it a place where life as we know it could exist? Okay. Um, but I guess, I guess I'm thinking, um, I guess I'm just wondering, is it, is it, since all of these money, money on missions, when we know that humans in our current state, we can't survive there. And doesn't that kind of rule out, um, I know that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so, we're, we're not going to be uh, habitating any of these locations. But at I the think. same time, um, the theory of how we evolved here on Earth is that invents, you know, chemicals might have come together. So in that case, perhaps there, there could be life in a very, very primitive form. Yeah. In, in, yeah. in vents. And, and that addresses the second part of the real question is that so suppose we discover fossils on mars then we know that there's some sort of living environment in our solar system but is it connected to life on earth did the molecules for life go from earth to mars or or even the other way around but with europa since it's been encased for four billion years in a protective shell if there's any Life eventually discovered. Hi. Clipper is not going to discover that right now. If there is life on Europa, then it was an independent initiation. Abiogenesis is what it's called, completely separate from what's happening on Earth. And to know that would then answer all the stars in the in the sky. Uh, can life originate on its own elsewhere? So. Those are some of the big questions. Thank you. Okay, yeah. Uh -huh. Well, uh, there are missions for cosmological studies, uh, astrophysics and whatnot, and I don't connect with them very well. I, it's way beyond uh, my experience, um, I am not an astrophysicist. So uh, yes, there are, are investigations into the basic uh, stuff of the, the cosmos. Do you want the mic? 
Yeah, would, would you please pass back? Right, so, so one of the, uh, just to kind of piggyback on some of the great questions that were just um, asked, um, one, one of the great things that uh, we would explore maybe as a theme um, in, in our profession is an example is like GPS, right? GPS has had millions of positive intent, unintended consequences when yeah. at the time we were partially didn't know what, what the science that was going to be derived from the mission when yeah. we launched GPS. Yeah. And so in the name of kind of science and progress and beyond that, sometimes you have to go into these sciences and these missions and these profiles and these launches uh, with, with, it's kind of shot in the dark, but 50 years, 70 years later, how humanity benefits from all this science is, is on an order of magnitude that was beyond yeah, I, I, what I we think, even conceived I at think the that's time. That's a real good comment. Right. And just as we looked at the moons orbiting Jupiter, uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago, um, to now that we know they're individual unique worlds, not just dead moons. I hope in our future, we will know whether life is, is confined to Earth or does it originate wherever you have the chances, wherever you have the right conditions. Yeah, all very basic science and, and right. basic perspective, yeah. And I, I have the fortunate um, to work with an astrophysicist. And so one of the conversations that he mentioned at the time, no, she mentioned at the time was, uh, labeling us as type civilizations. We are known as a type zero civilization, transference to a type one civilization, where you know a type one would control the weather, right? Oh, okay. We would be able to control our environment, maybe earthquakes to some extent. So in the name of kind of progress and science, kind of casting out these missions or these efforts that we may not know, uh -huh. but may have positive consequences towards that, those yeah. type of improving yeah. a civilization. Yeah, and that borders on science uh, fiction uh, that, that might be really interesting to speculative right. uh, fiction as well. Right. Yeah. Cool. Any um, complaints? <laughs> Good. No complaints. Any other questions? There's a question from Michael, but it's, uh, I think that will be the last one because okay. I think we really need to have lunch. Uh, okay. you know. So uh, he is asking, can we talk about some of your favorite signs on the creeper? Maybe what you you like to see there or what hopes you might have for the mission uh, we, we have so far. Uh, maybe drill down into uh, detail of the craft or oh, something great. like that. Okay. Yeah, nice, nice question to wrap up with. Um, my favorite is the reason, the radar for Europa Science, R-E-A-S-O-N stands for things that I'm not remembering, but the radar instruments on Clipper, they're going to characterize how thick the ice is on Europa, the moon. Um, that's what I'm really excited about seeing coming back. Another Another thing is flying by Europa 40 or 50 times, are we going to see any changes? Are those icebergs going to be seen to float around and move? Are, they, are there anything, uh, any changes happening on the surface that, that will belie um, how thick the ocean, how thick the ice shell is as it floats on the ocean and how much it's moving and whatnot? Um, that's, that's exciting to me as well. Um, 
looking at the surface, maybe what I'm looking most forward to is finding that there might be a, a plume, a geyser coming off of the, uh, the shell of Europa. And if there is a plume, we'll be able to analyze the chemistry and determine whether that plume is coming from a, a little puddle of a frozen lake, or is it connected to the deep saltwater ocean? I'll, I'll leave that as, as my favorite. And, uh, th and thanks for the question. So I think uh, since Ken said that would declare decreed to be the last question. I just want to say thank you again for uh, you. for having me here. It's, it's, it's been a, a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you. We have a great pleasure for the distinguished speaker, uh, Dave, who's here. So on behalf of the AIAA Los Angeles that speaker section, we have a, a, a certificate, the plaque, uh, with the AIAA Golden Seal. Uh, thank uh, you very much. Appreciation for our speaker today. Very nice. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, so thank you for joining to, uh, us today. Next Saturday, we'll have the Apollo 11 and uh, uh, Viking anniversary online. It's called the Neo State. We have been doing it for five or six years. Um, so please join us. And uh, besides, uh, so now we are moving to the lunch time. So I know a couple of you ordered the lunch, so please enjoy the lunches here. So please come over, enjoy and uh, continue networking. Uh, and uh, Mike has a very wonderful uh, pro pro uh, you know, suggestion. So. Um, uh, uh, please come forward so we have a group photo uh, if you like and uh, so we can have, have a group photo with the speaker uh, so before you leave for, for today okay so uh, with this thank you so much so uh, please stay enjoy um, until two o'clock we just have to evacuate uh, from the room by two so enjoy thank you so much for joining us today thank you appreciate it